If you're new with us, we've been going through the letter to the Romans, and we have come to Romans chapter 7. When a person has lived in a certain way for an extended period of time, a change of pace or a new way of life comes with great difficulty, doesn't it? I've had friends who, after retiring from their jobs, describe how strange the first post-retirement day is like. Uh, For example, one friend mentioned how difficult it was to stop dressing in a collared shirt around the house, realizing he didn't have to. He could wear a t-shirt if he wanted. He could wear a robe if he wanted, but he didn't have to dress up every day when he woke up. Another friend said it took him a while to get used to being able to sleep in without being afraid of being late for work. And so both these guys had struggled with this transition after decades of getting up at a certain time, getting dressed in a certain way, speaking about certain things. And the transition to new was very challenging for them. There are other transitions that are even more painful to cope with. For example, uh, the day that your child moves out, the day that your youngest child moves out of the house and, and they are now out on their own and you are an empty nester. The day after a loved one's funeral or weeks after a very close friend moves away. In all these examples, the transition to a new way of life comes with difficulty because of our extended experience as workers, parents, spouses, or friends. We've just, we've done it for so long this way. It's what we're used to. So the process of changing is quite painful. Preaching a gospel of justification, Paul knows that his readers will have great difficulty making the change from works to faith. For generations, the Torah, the law of God, complete with its commands of circumcision, sacrifices, purity rituals, and festivals was the governing rule for God's people. If you wanted to be righteous, you had to pursue God's law, you had to obey everything down to the iota of the law. Paul's gospel, however, proclaims that something new has come in Jesus Christ. It's not the old way of the law, it's something new. It's, a, it's an age of grace. No longer must one attempt to keep the law in order to attain righteousness. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, there is now a righteousness that is manifested apart from the law. Right? The righteousness of God, this right standing before God is now made manifest, revealed through a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Here's the basic application. I hope this is particularly helpful for you as mothers today. Stop working for your righteousness. Is there anyone just bold enough to say that they feel the pressure of not being good enough, not being righteous enough, not getting a standard. I mean, can we just can we just be an honest church for a second? Part, part of being a gospel-centered church is being bold enough to be transparent. And there are so many people here that are hiding, acting like I have to. I, they they look at church in dread, fearing that it, fearing it as something that they are afraid of going to because of the judgment. Church should be the place we run to because it's the one place we will receive the grace of God. If you have ever or are in this moment struggling to work or be good enough, 
If you felt that struggle in the last seven days, let me just ask you to be bold enough to stand up. I'm already standing, so I can't stand. I'm already standing. If you've had that struggle in the last seven days, Can I just give you good news? You don't have to work. You're good enough because Christ is good. You can sit. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant that, didn't he? This is the one place on earth you should feel free to come to to hear that message. The the rest of the world says you have to speak in this way. You have to do this thing. You have to tweet in this way. You have to post your Facebook messages this way. You have to do this. You have to walk the tightrope. But here at church, we come because we need the message that there is no tightrope. Jesus walked it. It's finished. We're good. The righteous status has been given to us. In fact, this is so important for us as God's people because we drift back into the workspace so much. In fact, Paul warns in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, that the one who works will receive his or her wages, which because of sin is death. So if we're going to work, we're going to die. But then he goes on to say, but it is the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see there, it's not not about pursuing and working for righteousness. It's about trusting in Jesus and him alone and receiving the righteousness that's in him. Not about you trying and working and sweating and improving and trying harder until you're dead. It's not about that. It's about trusting more, believing more, submitting to him more, clinging to him more. We grasp the wrong things. We pursue the wrong things. The problem is, is that just like the old retired men that cannot get it into their mind that they don't have to dress in a collared shirt anymore. Just like the, the, the mom who's now an empty nester realizes that she can eat breakfast first because there's no one else to cook breakfast for. We sometimes need the reminder that we're not in the old covenant anymore. We're not under law. We're in grace which is a far better place to be. So come out from underneath the law. You see, I, 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 I sympathize with all of you that are legalists and have a legalistic background. You can ask my wife, I am the worst legalist. I have standards of holiness, standards of righteousness. I will preach a gospel of grace on Sunday, beat myself up on Monday, beat up others on Wednesday, and then on Friday, I've just left a wake of legalism and a legal standard, and then realize on Saturday I have to preach a message of grace like a hypocrite. I sympathize with you. For those of us that come from that legalistic background, it is very hard to change. We're still getting dressed like we're going to work in the old covenant. We're still waking up like it's the old system. We're still waking up at a certain time instead of resting in like we can because of the grace that's been given to us. And it takes daily reminders that Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient. That it was enough. No more need be done. 
You can't attain, you can't achieve, you can't work for. It is, all God's people said, finished. It's finished. That's not to say that you shouldn't repent. It's not to say that you shouldn't confess your sin. All that is true, as we will see. Paul's not calling us to antinomianism. But he is calling us to stop beating ourselves up and others up with the law. And daily, people like me, who are used to judging people based on their works and used to judging myself based on what I do, used to judging other people based on external appearance or whatever, we need to be told daily to put down the whip of the law because Christ took the whip of the law. He took the lash and to live and stay rooted in the gospel every single day. We need that reminder, don't we? So, friends, like I told my retired friends, Wear a t-shirt. Wear your house shoes. Enjoy the freedom of being retired. Well, friends, as Christians, stop dressing up in the old covenant. Stop going to work. And live in the grace that is in Christ. We are free to serve Christ. Which is a different kind of work than what we used to do. The old has gone and the new has come. Okay? So hopefully that sets the stage for what Paul is doing in Romans 7. In the last section, Paul argued that the doctrine of justification by faith does not free a person to sin, but frees him or her to obey. So we're going to realize the gospel is like driving, right? How many of you drive and do not move the wheel? Well, nobody does that, right? If you hold the steering wheel and you refuse to do this, You're dead, right? I mean, you're going to crash. That's not driving. Driving is a series of corrections, isn't it? It's going forward and keeping yourself to the left when you start to go right and keeping yourself to the right when you start to go left. That's driving. Nobody drives like this. Who's driven before? My two-year-old drives like that, but nobody who's actually driven thinks that that's what driving is. So Paul's got this 10 and 2 gospel That the gospel is not antinomianism. It's not free reign to do what you want now. Because that takes you into the pit of death. Where there is no law, you can do whatever you want. But he also has the two, his hand on the two. And he keeps us out of legalism. That will drive us to the deadly pit that says that you are what you do. You are righteous because of what you do. And so if it feels like Paul is contradicting, he's not contradicting himself. He's correcting both fallacies at the same time. Non-Jewish people would probably lean more on the antinomian side. I can do what I want now. Jewish people lean more to the legalistic side. So he's correcting both and he's reminding you, you are not saved by the law, but you're not just saved to do whatever you want to do. And he keeps us on the road of the gospel. And the gospel is a series of making such corrections in our own life. Okay? So if you hear someone preach a gospel that just says, it doesn't matter what you do, they're driving with the tin and they're driving you to a ditch. If someone preaches a gospel to you that what you do brings you righteousness, they're driving you to the other end of the ditch. The gospel tells us that we're not saved by the law, but we are saved so that we may now obey God. That there's a freedom given that wasn't once there. Legalism, antinomianism, that's lawlessness, antinomianism, right? So, so 
Antinomianism is lawlessness. Legalism is this idea that our works are the source of our salvation or the way in which we attain righteousness. Paul's gospel says that the works or the fruit of our salvation, uh, that, that works are the, the fruit of our salvation, not the cause of it, right? So some of us are working so that we will be righteous before God. But the gospel tells us that we are righteous before God, so now we can bear fruit. So now we can work. One gospel says, work so that you'll be saved. The other true gospel that's in scripture says, you have been saved. Therefore, live and work for the Lord. You can now. And it's a freeing experience. It's not slavery. It's not pursuing righteousness on your own and beating yourself up. It's a freedom to serve. Now, Paul has used two metaphors to get his point across. In Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, he used the metaphor of slavery, right? Of, of, having a, of being a doulos. In Christ, we have been given a new master. We have a new labor. And we have the gift of life in place of the wages of death. Didn't, if you didn't listen to that sermon, I encourage you to go back. There's all kinds of things that we said that would be important in that. Um, in Romans chapter 7, the text that we're studying today, Paul uses the metaphor of marriage to further his point. Just as the gospel has given us a new master, master righteousness, right? The gospel has also given us a new husband. Now, this might seem odd to you guys going, ew, giving us a husband. It's a metaphor, guys, so grow up, okay? All right, so the gospel has given us a new husband, By marrying him, by unifying with him, we're now free to bear fruit to God. Okay? Now, in both of these metaphors, a new master and a new husband, Paul's overarching point is that Christians have come from something old to something new. Even in verse 6, Paul says that we have transitioned from the old way. Literally in the Greek, it means the oldness. All of that, that was old. And we've come, uh, the, the oldness of the letter of the law, and we've come to the newness or the new way of the spirit. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, these Christians have to be taught, don't they? How to live, how to move beyond the old and how to live in the new. Is anyone else but me going to benefit from this sermon? Because I need this reminder that I have moved beyond the old. And I live in new. We need this desperate. This is part of the reason why pregnant teenage girls do not feel the freedom to come to church where they will find a refuge. This is the reason that the world laughs at the church when we speak about things like race. This is the reason the world looks at us as a bunch of rule makers rather than those who preach a gospel of righteousness by faith. We are not in the old anymore, my friends. You are in the new. And so we are to learn. Just as a marriage comes with union, so also the covenant of the law speaks of belonging to the law, and the covenant with Christ speaks of belonging to Christ. So whichever covenant You are under, either you're under the old covenant or the new covenant. The old covenant, you belong under the law. There, you must work for righteousness and you will not do it. You will not attain it. 
The new covenant says that the work has been completed by Christ on the cross. Their righteousness can be attained because it's not about what we've done, but what he's done, what he's accomplished that has brought us righteousness. So we are no longer married to the law so that we may belong to the resurrected savior. So church, just listen up based on this metaphor. You have a new husband. Quit wearing the old wedding ring. It's a new husband. It's a new life, a new way of living, a new way of acting. So, Let's dive in. Paul aims for his readers, his Jewish readers explicitly, to understand his message. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now when he says that, he he says, I'm speaking to Jews, basically. Those are the ones that know the law. So he turns from speaking to just Gentiles, to now he's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to both audiences throughout Romans, but at this point it's to Jews. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives... For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So, who must live according to the law? Paul's answer is, anyone who's alive. Anyone who's alive. Now, that's going to be an important part of his answer, because he's going to, he's going to tell us here in a minute that we've all died. Anyone who's alive must submit to the law. In the, it just, it, when, a, when a woman is married, she is legally bound, legally unified to who? Her husband. Even the lost world gets this, right? Even non-believing people get this. In the marriage covenant, the bounds of marriage is till death do we part or until you sign the papers and get out of it. That's what the world's definition is. For us, it's till death do we part. As long as the husband is alive... The woman and the man are inseparably unified. When the husband dies, however, the woman is no longer bound to her husband. He carries the analogy even further. Accordingly, she, the woman, will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another, she is not adulterous. So I just want you to, let's, let's put Paul's analogy into our lifetime. Suppose, suppose you decide to eat out tonight. Okay. So it's mother's day. Moms don't want to cook guys. If you haven't set money in your budget, she don't want to cook tonight. Okay. Take her out or bring something in. Okay. Just friendly reminder from your neighborhood Spider-Man. Don't make her cook, bring in food. All right. Now, suppose you go out and you're picking up food And you see your friend sitting at a table at your favorite restaurant with a young man that you've never seen before. Your friend has been married to Jim for 10 years and even has kids at home. Her diamond ring sits on her finger in plain sight. Now, you're seeing this and this is odd. You know Jim. That's not Jim. She's sitting at the table with a guy who's not Jim. She's dressed up in a fancy dress and they're laughing and she's cutting her steak and they're talking. And it looks like it's pretty intimate little fellowship here. Now, you don't want to make any hasty accusations because you've watched enough movies, right, that you know that when you jump into accusations, it might just be the brother, right? Or it might be someone that's in her family, right? So you don't want to jump into accusation mode. So you walk up and you decide to say hi. Now, you greet your friend, you give her a little hug, and you ask a probing question. Well, who's this? Is this your brother? 
Suppose she smiles at you and says, no, no, this is my boyfriend. We're just uh, enjoying a little night out on the town. Suddenly you're like, what? Alarm bells go off, right? Ding, 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 ding. Something's not right about this. How can this woman who has been in a seemingly happy marriage for years be on a date with with another man? And so you ask, are you and Jim doing okay? To which she answers, oh, yes, everything's great. I've just decided to spice things up a bit. Jim doesn't know I'm out with Tom tonight. He thinks I'm at my mom's. Now, how many of you would agree that that's wrong? That would be like terribly, tragically, you know, obviously wrong. Okay? I think all of us would say, well, duh. Even, even the world would say, duh. I mean, we've got, we've got uh, uh, WEB TV shows called Cheaters just because they're like, that's wrong. They make these seri- scenarios just because they know that. Like, everybody knows that's wrong. <laughs> Don't be dating other girls when you're married to a woman, Right? Don't be dating other men when you're married to a uh, husband. There you go. Got to <laughs> keep everything's recorded, so we got to keep it straight here. Very simple. That's wrong. Plain as day. When you are when when you're married, you're in a covenant with the person that you're married to. Anything else is cheating. It's unfaithful. We call it infidelity, meaning that it is a breach of the covenant that you have made. Now let's change the scenario just a bit, okay? You decide to go out to your favorite restaurant, and you see your old friend sitting inside. Your friend tragically lost her husband in a car accident. His name was Jim a few years ago. But now she's sitting at a table with a fancy dress and sitting with a handsome young man. You walk in, you give her a hug, and you ask that question, well, who's this? She tells you, well, this is Tom. As difficult as it was to accept that Jim is gone, I've decided to start dating again. Do you have the same reaction as you would in the first scenario? No, in fact, you might even think, well, good for you. I hope it works out. What's the difference between these two scenarios? You get the same woman sitting with the same Tom, and Jim is somewhere in the picture, but in one scenario, Jim is at home, not knowing that his wife is with Tom. In the second scenario, Jim is dead. What's the difference? The difference is explicitly that of a covenant. In the first scenario, the woman is in an active covenant with her husband. Is she not? She is committed to him. She has vowed to be with him. They stood at an altar for all kinds of people and said, till death do us part. I mean, she made a promise and she's breaking that promise. She's in that active covenant. It's binding at that moment, meaning that she shouldn't be dating Tom. Jim's at home. You should be at home with Jim. Now the other scenario, she's not in the covenant anymore. Her husband passed away. The covenant is ended from a human standpoint. It is, there's, there's not a marriage at that point. The husband's hopefully because of faith with Jesus. So this woman's now what? Free. That seems like a weird way to say that, isn't it? But isn't she free to date again? Without any kind of judgment from other people? Well, yes, because there's not an active marriage covenant. We have to understand this analogy because it helps us understand what Paul's telling us. Friends, your old husband is gone. The old covenant marriage is dead. You are now married to a new husband. You're not bound to the old husband anymore. 
You're not bound to the old husband anymore because the covenant is over because of a death, a very significant death. I'm going to spit all over the place here. This is essentially what Paul says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Do you hear the beauty of that? Who has died? You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Another who? Another him. Another man. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. As he explains this in his analogy, Paul points to our unity with Christ. When Jesus died, all who are his died with him. Jesus' death was your death. You were unified with Christ in his death. When Jesus rose again, you were risen to a new life. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So just as death frees a woman to date and then eventually marry a new husband, so also Jesus' death and our death in his death frees us to enter the new covenant life. Can you imagine how bizarre it would be for a woman to set up a dinner date at a graveside for her old husband? To sleep beside the grave. How tragic that would be for, to, to see that kind of deep grief. Like that would make us all just kind of hurt for that widow, right? Imagine if she never touched the stuff and she still imagined Jim was there. And still lived in that way. At some point, healing comes with her doing what? Moving on. As painful as that may be to say, the reality is, is that when Jim died, she's been freed. For a new life now. That doesn't mean I'm not making any analogies to real life and marriage where she should now get married, right? But I am saying that that old covenant's gone because of the death, right? Paul's saying that a death has occurred. Ex husband law is gone, new husband Christ has come. It's a new life. Why did Jesus die? Yes, so that he could forgive our sins and take away our condemnation. Yes, so that he could reconcile us to God. Yes, so that he could give us eternal life. But Paul adds that Jesus died so that we could belong to him. So that our ex-husband would be gone. That our new husband Christ would be with us. That we could be unified with him. Accordingly, we are not only unified with Christ in his death. Unified with him in his resurrection. We are his. So following the analogy, Jesus died so we could have a new covenant. So we could have a new marriage. And a new husband. Therefore, friends, you are free from that old husband. Now, what are the implications of this? Paul's analogy leads us to some very heart-searching questions as Christians, right? If we are no longer bound to the old husband, the law, and now we belong to a new husband, Christ, then what exactly is the outcome of this new marriage? What's going to come from this new marriage? According to verse 4, this new covenant marriage has happened. Look at what he says in verse 4. So that we may bear fruit for God. That's why it's happened. Why, why has he worked? 
Why has he worked so that you could die to the old husband and have a new husband? So that now you could actually bear fruit to God. So that now you could do what God requires. So that now you could obey God's commands. Just as the marriage covenant is binding, meaning that it comes with vows and expectations and fidelity to a spouse, Paul's basically arguing that under the old covenant, you were not able to obey God. Because you're beholden to the old covenant husband. Now that you're in a new covenant husband, with a new covenant husband, you are now free to obey God. Free to obey God. Paul explains, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. As Paul will show in the next section, the law itself is not sinful. The law itself is not bad. However, the law was never given to keep you from sin. It certainly has restraining elements to it by telling us what God does not want. But in reality, the law wasn't ever given for us to attain righteousness through that way. If anything, the law highlights, highlights, emphasizes our sin, right? It's almost as if we've got some kind of magnet that says that whatever God says, we're going to do the exact opposite. If we don't know what God says, then we'll ignore the, the law of the conscience, right? We'll just, we'll ignore the written code that's on our conscience and do whatever we want, as Paul says in Romans 2 about the Gentiles. But if we do know what God says, then it just exasperates it even more so that we do even more sin, right? It's almost as if it's in the knowing that it's sinful that is enticing to us. In knowing that we shouldn't do it, that's enticing to us. Paul says this in the next section where Brandon's going to preach next Sunday, that he didn't know what coveting was until the commands came and said, do not covet. Suddenly he's coveting. My friends, we do that, don't we? Adam and Eve do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happens? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes it's knowing the law of God that emphasizes the sin that's already in us. The law is simply not enough to keep you out of sin. It cannot keep you out of sin. It highlights, spotlights sin, but doesn't restrain you from your sin. In fact, in Romans 6.11, Paul says that when the law is given, sin seizes the opportunity. Sin seizes the opportunity. The law does not stem the tide of our passion. As every married man knows, the law of marriage and being bound to a woman does not keep us out of lustful thoughts, does it? Doesn't restrain us from looking at things online. The law doesn't restrain sin. It highlights, emphasizes that there is sin. You cannot attain righteousness through the law. From the beginning, the old covenant could not make a person righteous. Just look at Exodus 20 for this example. God shows up on top of Mount Sinai and he gives this big booming voice, tells them all the law, gives them the Ten Commandments himself, the Ten Words, the Decalogue. They, they fall back in fear. It wasn't enough. No, in the very next chapter, they're building golden calves in the wilderness, doing all the things that God said not to do. The old covenant shows us that we simply do not have the heart to obey God. Under the law, we sin. 
And because of our sin, we bear the fruit of death. The new covenant, however, renders a different result. As Paul says, the new covenant marriage allows us to bear fruit to God. But now we are released from the law. He says this in verse 6. Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now that word release there is the same word that he used all the way up in verse 2 in describing a woman who's released from her ex-husband after he dies. We've been released, and now we're free to enter a new covenant. So all of you who are like me and are legalists going, I, I, just, it's, I struggle not working for my righteousness. Paul reminds you, you've been released from that. You've been set free. Those old covenant stipulations are not there anymore. Now you can live in the newness of the Spirit. As Christians, we are not people of the letter. We're not people of the written code. I think it's goofy when Christians think that putting up the Ten Commandments is proof of righteousness. Because the, the irony is, is that putting up the Ten Commandments is actually proof of your unrighteousness. They're not just things that you should do. They're things that you don't do. And it highlights all that. Now that we've come to the new covenant, we've come to realize that we don't live by the letter. We live by spirit. By the Spirit of God living in us. That now we are able. There was once upon a time we could not help but sin. We had to sin. We had to satisfy lustful cravings. As Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But what happens in the grace of Jesus? By the grace of God, we've been raised together with Christ, seated in the high places. Right? We've now been set free so that we can now obey God the way we should. So Paul's point to Christians here is as much as you might be used to beating yourself up, kicking yourself down, beating up other people, setting up these rigid rule systems where you smack hands and smack backs and tell people why they're not good enough, you are beyond that by the gospel. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. So while he just said in the last text, we are not free to do whatever sin that we want. He now course corrects us back to the middle of the road and says, but that doesn't mean that we have to live by law. You're not free to do as you please, but you don't have to live under law. You can live by the spirit, which is freedom. To not have to be enslaved to either the law or your sinful passions, but to be a servant of Christ. That's the beauty of our Christian freedom. And you might say, I agree with all that. So what? Okay, well, let's talk about the so what. Well, a few of us would actually label ourselves legalists. You know, it's not us who are the legalists. It's typically the people next to us that are the legalists. It's all the other people that live by the law. Okay, they're the legalists. So I'm glad that I'm preaching these sermons to all those other people, right? The sad truth is that legalism pops up. In our own marriages, doesn't it? In our parenting, in our friendships, in our churches, it pops up all the time. Let's take a rather goofy example. Once upon a time, somebody said cleanliness is next to godliness. It, it became such a wildfire of a phrase that there are people to this day that still think it's somewhere in Scripture. 
You know, as the Bible says, cleanliness is next to godliness. I hope that's not true because all my children are helpless. As my wife will tell you, I myself am helpless. If, 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 we might wish that's true, that cleanliness is next to godliness, but the reality is, is that clean faces, clean bedrooms, and organized sock drawers do nothing to make you godly, right? Why do we even say it? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Certainly there may be underlying character issues of responsibility, respect for others, care for one's own possessions. However, when you make this law of cleanliness, it still doesn't make a person's heart clean, does it? Doesn't make it a, make a person godly. Strict household rules of cleanliness do not render people who are righteous because rules cannot make one righteous. Now that's a goofy one. We'd all agree with that one, I think. None of us are probably, you know, telling our husband that he's going to hell because he put his dirty clothes on the floor. But the reality is, is that that's just another goofy example of how we do kind of drift into this legalism. Let's let's widen our scope. Let's get let's hit home, shall we? While it's a good and godly thing to dress modestly, modest clothing does not stop adultery, does it? Ooh, now we're in dangerous ground. We're on thin ice here. You see, the thing about lustful minds is that lustful minds have x-ray eyes. Lustful hearts easily hop over the short fences of modesty. History has shown that even if you were to transplant yourself into a strict Muslim context, where women uh, are required to wear full burqas, things like adultery, sexual abuse, molestation, and prostitution still exist. So if you think that the reason our culture is so lust-based, sex-based, is because of all the women wearing yoga pants, you do not understand sin. The sin doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside, it comes from the heart. We could dress all those women up in burqas, and guess what? We're still going to have molestation, sexual abuse, prostitution, and immorality. Every single time. Muslim community proves it over and over again. Even if every woman and child and man were to live on earth, lust will live on earth blindfolded. Lust will find a way. It just will. I was raised, this is part of my testimony. If you know my testimony, I was raised in a church where all the women were recommended, if not outright required, to wear full-length dresses down to their feet. Some of the men decided that they would require their wives to wear a jacket on top of that, just in case. And so you had these women walking around in jean jackets in the dead of summer in southeastern Oklahoma. So that we could prevent lust and adultery, right? Because surely the way to do that is to put on more clothes. Now, as a, as a dad of a daughter, I tend to want to agree with that. I'm going to stop it, Right? I'm going to make this not happen. My friends, when I left that church, true story, when I left that church, a whole slew and group of people came out with sexual scandals from that church. Swingers groups in that church. Most of those men who were participating in that swingers group made their wives dress up according to the rules. Rules don't make a person righteous. Rules don't make a person righteous. All these men and, 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 and all these teachings that say that a woman has to 
keep up with her body so that he doesn't go to the strip club. I'm sorry, my friends. It's not the woman's fault. It's your sinful heart that can't look at a woman in a godly way that's sinful. Will you stop blaming other people for your rebellion? Lustful thoughts come from the heart. If a heart is bent by lust, it will not be stopped by suits, full-length dresses, or puffy coats in the dead of summer. It won't be stopped by burkas. It won't be stopped by... In the old days of sewing us up in burlap sacks so we can't touch each other. It's not going to be stopped that way. But yeah, how often do we think that because of my modesty, I am righteous? Or because somebody else dresses modesty, they're righteous. My friends, don't get me wrong. I am all for modesty. All for modesty. I'm a dad. I'm all for modesty. Yeah, yeah, modesty. Go for it. But rules don't make a person righteous. My children's only hope of not failing and falling into sexual immorality is not that they wear the right thing, but that they have the right heart. We have entire churches where pastors have preached this legal. You just go watch the Hillsong uh, uh, documentary sometime. I mean, talk about this legalistic standard of if you do this, this, and this, and this, you're going to hell. And the pastor's doing this, this, and this while he's preaching it. The rules don't make someone righteous. Good things like modesty can become the wrong idea for how we become righteous. My friends, my hope is not in a dress code. My hope is in a gospel that sets me as a man free from my lust. It's not in dress codes. It's not in walking around the streets of the world and donning on uh, big comforters over them so I don't have to see them anymore. It's not going to stop my lustful heart. It won't stop yours either. Righteousness doesn't come by rules. And if you think that's true, you're believing a fallacy. Dress modestly for the sake of others, absolutely. Because you have respect for yourself. Dress modestly because you have respect for others, absolutely. But when you start dipping into thinking that righteousness is based on that, and then you start making rules of what modesty actually is, you've done dipped in the legalistic system. Let's take another example. A person may be against alcohol or any kind of potentially addictive substance. And by the way, if you believe that, you're well within your limits and rights to do that. Okay? You can say, you can believe that alcohol is wrong. However, if a person thinks that they can avoid addiction or bad habits simply by ignoring certain drinks, they have deluded themselves. I know many a man who has given up alcohol only to become workaholics. I know many people who have never tasted of a drink or a drug that's, that's uh, potentially, potentially addictive, and yet they're addicted to things like gossip and anger and judgmentalism. They, they can't, they're addicted to their own mouth and their own opinions. They, they just they can't stop it. They, they have to feed it. So staying away from certain drinks and drugs doesn't keep you from being an addictive person. Go to any self-help group and they will tell you that a sober person is not just people who avoid certain things. Sobriety is more than just avoiding certain things. Sobriety is a state of mind in which a person is free to think clearly and wisely about their choices and they are able to discern the will of God because of the sober mind. 
There's a lot of people who've never even touched a Bud Light and are still not sober-minded people because sobriety isn't about that. So again, here we have another example where we think that a drink or a drug or avoiding that drink or drug makes one righteous when in reality we have missed the point altogether. Just think about what Jesus told the Pharisees. It's not the things that a person puts into the body that makes them unclean. Didn't he say that to them? Not the things they eat or eating with unwashed hands. It's the things that come out of the heart. Where does uncleanness come from? This applies to that, that lustful talk that we just had. It's not everybody else's fault. The, the, the temptation to sin is not just external. It isn't here. What does James say about temptation? That Satan lures us away with what? The desires of our heart. He doesn't use external bait. He's got all the bait he needs inside of you. My friends, our hope is not in dress codes. It's not in burkas. It's not in full-fledged fluffy coats in the summertime. It's not in making sure that our wine cooler is empty. It's not in knocking the drinks out of other people's hands. It's in preaching the gospel and helping people understand the righteousness that has been manifested by faith in Christ. Not the letter of the law, but the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. We are no longer guilty, no longer condemned. He rose again so that now we can walk in newness of life. I cannot commit, I can, I can be free from adultery because Christ has changed my heart, not because everybody else changes the way they dress. I can be free from addiction, not because I avoid all the Bud Light fluorescent signs, but because I have a mind that seeks to stay clear and to think clearly about the will of God. No external thing is going to bring you Quit blaming all that. Jesus is a new husband who's given you a new heart. That's not the heart of stone and letter of the law. It's the heart of flesh that beats with the spirit of God in it. He's changed your very desires and affections. His war is not against all the external things. His war is against the affections and the desires that is inside of you. He wants those He wants to capture them, captivate them, and then give you a better, transformed, transfixed desire to serve the Lord. So that when you now speak to others, it's not in judgment. It's in grace-filled words of the gospel. So that when you live a righteous life, and when people ask you, how do you know that you have righteousness? It's not, well, I avoid this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. But instead, it's based off of the freedom that you have because you believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus has set us free. Our righteousness is a person, not a rule book. Our righteousness is a person. Does it matter what you do? Absolutely. Paul has said that over and over. But when you begin to think that what you do is your righteousness, you have veered from the gospel. We are saved to bear fruit. Now, that prepares the way for what Brandon's going to preach next Sunday when he addresses, what about the law and the life of a Christian? What, what, how do we view the law as a Christian? Is the law evil? Is it bad? Should we just be antinomian now and just say, ah, the heck with the law? 
Well, Romans 7, he's going to pull us back to the middle of the road. He's driving us. He's just told us that legalism is not the way. And the next week, he's going to help us understand how it continues to set us free to obey God, not to do what we want. So Christian, Jesus has died for you. Did you deserve it? No. If you did, it would be a wage, not a gift. Didn't Paul say that? Jesus died and took your sin, all the nastiness that you were earned judgment for, and he bore it on himself on the cross, bearing your curse, your crown of thorns, and he died, literally died on the cross, was buried, rose again three days later, and has given you his new life promising that you will live with him, that you are now able to obey him. No longer is it up to you. It is up to the spirit of God that lives in you. Stop beating yourself up. Put down the whip. You don't belong to those slave masters anymore. Be free to truly obey God. Be free from the burqas. And at the same time, be free from the adultery. Stop expecting external things to change. And start looking for what Jesus has done to the heart. That's where the change comes from. If Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could live in Persia, surrounded by sin and sex and all these different things, and be faithful. If David could live in the Israel he lived in, if the New Testament Christians could live in the Roman Empire, where all these things, they, the Roman Empire looking just like what the world we live in now, they could live that and be free from sexual morality, scandals, pornography addictions, gossip sessions, hateful speech to other people. If they could be free from that. So can we, because we have the same gospel they did. So, enjoy your new marriage. And live the new life that comes from this marriage. Be free from the guilt and the burden of sin. And live in the joy of your new husband, Christ. Pray. Father God, I pray that you will take this really poorly communicated, long-winded sermon. And that you will work it to the benefit of your people. That you will bear fruit. As always, I thank you that it is not dependent on men like myself. But it is dependent on the Spirit of God working and moving. So God, I pray you will work and move now. In the name of Jesus, we pray.